Here's Joshy. What's up, Nightmare Nerds? I'm Josh, and welcome to the Nightmare Network presentation of Nightmare Revisited, a podcast deep dive into memorable scares that have stuck with and shaped us over the years. On today's episode, arguably one of the most iconic and terrifying films of all time, Stanley Kubrick's 1980 psychological horror masterpiece, The Shining. Adapted from the Stephen King novel, the film was panned by critics upon its initial release and was most notably hated by the author himself. And I mean, it makes sense given how personal the novel was for King and how much Kubrick deviated from the actual text. But the film stands alone and its influence is undeniable. From the Grady twins to the elevator bloodbath, the hedge maze, that creepy score, the steadicam and the tricycle, Red Room, Room 237, all work in no play makes Jack a dull boy, and of course, the axe-wielding Jack Nicholson's maniacal Here's Johnny line. The film is chock full of memorable moments. Mike and I both saw The Shining for the first time at a very young age, and for me, for better or worse, I watched it with my father. Shout out to all the dads out there who make questionable film choices with their kids. And while that first viewing was monumental for me, over the years and after repeated viewings, I remained completely transfixed by the mysteries and horrors of the Overlook Hotel. And I'm not alone. The Shining continues to be examined in different ways. In 2012, the documentary Room 237 was released and explored some of the conspiracy theories and subjective interpretations fans have become obsessed and consumed by over the years. There's really so much to talk about with this one, so let's get to it. Welcome to Nightmare Revisited. All right, Nightmare Nerds, so this is the big one. A uh, little history on me and Josh. Josh and I are, when we first met, we're, we're co-workers at our institution of employment. And uh, first few years of our relationship, we were cool, but we weren't really friends. And then we kind of started to realize that we had the same interests in horror movies, most notably what I found, found out to be Josh's favorite movie of all time. This is The Shining. It's a big one. It's had a big effect on both of our lives in very different ways. Let's jump right in and let's say, hey, man, what was your first experience with The Shining? The day is here, Mikey. We're talking about The Shining. Ooh, I know. It's a big day <laughs> on the Nightmare Network. Uh, the first time I ever saw The Shining is very similar to the first time that I ever saw Pet Cemetery, which is another thing that we talked about. But instead of watching with my brother, I watched The Shining with my father, of all people. And I was probably around age nine, age 10. I was too young, way too young. We would have this tradition back then where we would go to the video store. He would allow me to you know, scroll through typically the horror section and pick out a movie that I thought looked interesting. I don't know if I knew anything about The Shining at the time. I'm gonna say that I didn't and uh, saw the cover and was like, wow, this looks cool. And so we threw that one on, um, it was just he and I. I don't know where my mom or my brother were, but I had to ask him to turn the movie off at around the point <laughs> when Danny sees the, uh, has the visions of the twins uh, chopped up in the hallway. I think that was the exact moment where I was like, thrown in the towel, dad, this is too much for me right now. And it's always just really stuck with me. And I think every time that I watch The Shining, I take away something new and I have a different experience with it. And my dad's been passed for close to eight years now. And he, it always just reminds me of him, even if the movie's about an alcoholic murderous father. Which is interesting because conversely on my end, uh, the first time I had seen The Shining, so I have I have a I have a long history of movies with my dad. We we had the same type of relationship where he would pick me up from preschool, preschool, Ooh. and would every day would take me to uh, to Blockbuster, and we would get a new 
Godzilla VHS because I love Godzilla. He got me into Godzilla. We used to watch it all the time when we were kids. We, we would go home, we'd pop in the Godzilla VHS, and me and my dad would watch it. And it, so it, it, and it gradually turned from Godzilla to Tremors, which is my favorite movie, which we will be talking about on season two of uh, the Nightmare Network podcast. Uh, it, so it turned into that, and it turned into Tremors, and then it turned into more monster movies, and then it turned into horror movies. And I think my dad knew from a very early age that I loved horror movies, I loved this kind of stuff, and to his credit, he didn't stop me from watching them. So one day I remember coming down into my living room, this was in the winter, and it was definitely at night, so everyone else was asleep, and my dad was watching a movie on TV that I didn't know what it was. And I remember exactly what scene it was. It was the scene where Dick comes into the overlook and uh, Jack is hiding behind a uh, behind, behind a pillar and then he swings his axe and he kills Dick, right? That was the first scene I'd ever seen in The Shining. And I saw that and I'm pretty sure, like, I, I must have been like six. Six-year-old me was like, this looks awesome. And my dad was like, all right, let's watch it. But we never did until, and this is a secondary story, uh, I used to, I had a really great relationship with my grandparents when I was little. They, they, they pretty much, uh, you know, part-time raised me and my sister when my mom went back to work because there were five kids at that point and it was just a, there were five of us, like it was a nightmare. So they, it was, that, that's a nightmare we could do on this, uh, <laughs> on this channel. And my, my, my pup-up had an entire room of VHS tapes that were cataloged. And, and it, like, I'm telling you, there were hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of VHS tapes. And what he would do was he would go to the uh, TV guide. He would cut out uh, the description from the TV guide. He would put that on index cards. He would categorize those index cards. He would put those index cards' serial numbers in a ledger. So you could go to the ledger. It would tell you where you could find the card. You would go find the card, read if you wanted to watch that movie, and then the card would tell you what VHS tape to find it. But insane. Like, like I lived with this and thought it was normal. And it, and it, it, thinking back on it, the coolest thing I've ever had. Like, it, like that's why I love movies, because of my dad and my pup-up. And so I remember my dad saying it was The Shining. So, I, so I, used to, I used to go find movies there that I knew my parents probably wouldn't let me watch. But my grandparents just were like, whatever, throw it on and we'll, we'll like, you know. My, my mama would smoke in her chair and that was where, like that that's what just what we would do she wouldn't even pay attention she would smoke and do the rosary like lo- loved her to death so i found the shining he had recorded it so it was the tv version right and uh it was i probably it was probably my birthday cuz cuz this was mostly what we did on my birthdays was i would sleep over my my mama's house and we would watch movies i could not sleep for the rest of the night they had an old creaky house that was terrifying they had they had gave me a nightlight. I don't know if you felt the same way. Nightlights were made things worse I agree. for me. Like the like the fact that I could see stuff and it was like shadowy and and stuff. And my grandparents had a very like late seventies, early eighties vibe to their house. They had like wood paneling on half of the wall, and then they had I'm not kidding a a neon orange shag carpet. Fuck on the yeah. other wall like it was so awesome and so i felt i felt like i was in the overlook because it was so it was so that vibe especially the orange and so it, it just it scared the hell out of me man like i felt like i was there in the overlook in my parents house or grandparents house one thing i want to ask you is what was it that terrified you initially versus what terrifies you now yeah no that's really interesting to think about it that way because when i first saw it as i said i was quite young and 
as you know, Danny in the film is a sensitive, observant, innocent child. The movies that really did terrify me when I was a lot younger featured kids who I felt very similar to. And I think the thing that scared me back then was was not that my dad was ever, ever violent or ever anything like Jack's unhingedness in the film. But I think the thing that scared me was thinking about like how a father could potentially become that yeah they could potentially become that person and that that wow, I think, you were thinking you were you were thinking about that as a kid i maybe wasn't thinking about it as a, as a kid but i think like you know when you yeah. think back on films that scared you as a kid and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, you, yeah yeah maybe you didn't know back then why the fuck you were so scared and then you yeah. think about it as an adult and you're like that's probably part of the reason i was really scared yeah for sure i think now i watch it and it's a whole different ball game because i see jack as this <laughs> displaying this like toxic masculinity in a way that you know is it's sort of hidden for a lot of the film and then it comes out in yeah. really awful ways and you th- i don't know you think about it in a way that you're like wow like men are men can be and men are awful sometimes it's interesting because what i wrote down for this is the visuals versus the visceral because when i was a kid visually this movie terrified me the twins i remember being absolutely horrified by not even their murder it was just their existence like something about it was just so it was was so terrifying and as a kid i don't think you understand why you're so afraid of it which is kind of what you touched on but like that terrified me the old hag terrified me and i guess thinking back on it those visuals terrified me but what i think is great about this movie is that those visuals are so tied to i guess things that terrify us and that, I, and that I didn't realize why I was so scared of it at the time. Like, for, for example, I, I, like things that shouldn't be, I guess, terrified me, right? Like, like, like the the twins. I'd never seen twins before, right? But I knew, I knew, you know, I knew they existed. But they certainly don't speak in unison. They certainly don't do, you know, walk hand in hand in the same motions. And I think that that kind of like challenge to my reality even terrified me as I was a kid. And uh, the same thing with with the hag, you know. Like, I, I think I think that was a great embodiment of a fear of growing older as a child. Like seeing the future, kind of was was what terrified me. As an adult, as I watch it, I'm terrified of turning into Jack because, and uh, you touched on this too. Yeah. You know, I, I think I think a toxic masculinity kind of viewpoint towards The Shining is a really interesting way to look at it. I certainly have never seen it that way. So it, it but hearing you say it is very, um, it makes it very poignant. But to me, I'm afraid of turning into Jack. I'm afraid of being that empty. I'm afraid of, of being that desolate, I guess. And, 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 and this movie hits me di- a bit differently than it hits you because there's a history of alcoholism in my family and I have a complicated relationship with other male family members. And, you you know, sometimes when I see Jack, I see them, right? And that's not someone I want to turn into. And and it it gets... It gets scary to me because sometimes I see myself turning into that and I don't like it and I have to stop myself and readjust my behavior because that's not the person I want to turn into. And every time I watch The Shining, I think of that. Like, I don't want to have those relationships that he has facilitated and... And it gets a little dip more complicated with me with the book as well, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But yeah, I think I think that's really on the whole what, what really terrifies me about this movie. Yeah, and I think just horror in general as a genre, if it's doing the genre justice, I think it's doing a really good job at showing you 
the potential horrors that could surface, right? And I think The Shining is the, just a brilliant example of that. I think Kubrick, he's done that time and time again, and I think The Shining is no different. I mean, he's no Tommy Wiseau, but I do hear you. <laughs> he's pretty he's no cool. no Zack Snyder. No, he's, <laughs> no, he most certainly is not. <laughs> I have different questions every time I, every time I see this movie, and I, I think I have different responses every time I see this movie. I remember thinking this when I saw it in high school. Why do we root against Wendy, or do or do oh, you? Because because I like it's a very weird feeling to me like wendy is trying to save her son she's trying to appease her husband she's trying to she she's trying to make everything okay and she drives me through the roof like it's it's a such a weird feeling and i'm wondering what you think about it uh (laughs) so funny you bring this up i went to film school up in canada and I lived with two other film majors, among a few others. Uh, it was a big house. And a lot of our free time was spent watching movies. A lot, of our, a lot of our school time was spent watching movies, let's be honest. But a lot of our free time was also spent watching movies and getting stoned. And I specifically remember watching The Shining. Shout out to the, the OG MG, Mike Gallant up there, my, my, my homie up in Hamilton, Ontario. He and I were watching it. And I brought up, I've always looked at Shelley Duvall's performance and been like, there's something off here. And it's... Like, it drives me crazy. Her performance is, like, campy. Even though, even though I will argue that her scream when he when he axes through the door is maybe my favorite I- scream of all time yeah. in any horror movie. But there's something about her... I'm just going to let my dog drink her water. Okay. Because it's getting on. She's, she's thirsty. Keep this in the pod, too, because I want everyone to know that Fiona is thirsty, but she is getting her drink on. Okay, you done? Any second now. Can you go in your bed? Slurp, slurp. Can you go in your bed? <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to the Fiona show. <laughs> uh, okay. So Shelley's, Shelley Duvall's performance as Wendy always, always threw me off. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Didn't quite know why I thought what I thought about Because Jack Nicholson's performance is equally as campy, you could argue. And especially in certain instances, there are a lot of really quippy sort of one-liners and things like that. But I remember Mike turns to me, uh, my old roommate Mike, and he was like, Kubrick probably directed her to be somebody who who audiences are just going to loathe. Yes, yes. You know, this has been my theory is that so, you know, a little bit contextually, like Shelley Duvall at the time was she was Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme. You know what I mean? Like like she she was hosting Casey at the Bat, you know, like the fairy tales She's on TV. Popeye. She yeah, she was in Popeye, but it's it's wild that you know that he cast this children's star because that's what she was. She was a children's star. I think he directed her like that because I th- I think one of the I don't even know if it's kind of manipulative at this point. I don't know if you could call it geniuses of the movie, but like Kubrick wants us to go crazy with Jack. I I, I like I hundred percent believe that he wants to deprave us. He wants to bring us down to Jack's level because he thinks he can. At least this is my personal interpretation of it. It's such a weird feeling to like want to kill the good person yeah. right like it's and it's that's, wild let's, i know i know i'm just praising kubrick like any film dude does but let's let, not let him off the hook and and remember how much strife shelly duvall walked oh, yeah. away from yep. this film with and how mentally unstable she became i think probably yeah. due in part to this this role and that sucks a clockwork orange too there's obviously so many problems with that i think he's doing it for a specific artistic reason but that doesn't make it okay right so yeah so uh, this is a question that's been scratching my brain also for a while did we fake the moon landing and is this stanley kubrick's confession this is what we're here to answer 
in a previous life, I worked in entertainment television up in Toronto, Canada. He he's not saying that he has been reincarnated. He uh, is just saying that it, well, it's kind of. Uh, or are you? I don't know. I'll leave that up okay. to for all you. All to, right. So to Josh has been reincarnated. Reincarnated as a and as, in a past life as an American and. And I, there was a Stanley Kubrick exhibit at the Toronto International Film Festival headquarters up there, um, which I was super stoked for. And I got to one of, one of the items, it was just a bunch of memorabilia, right? So it's like scripts and uh, costumes and uh, paraphernalia, whatever, from all of Kubrick's films. And the Apollo 11 sweater that Danny wore was part of the exhibit. And I got to interview Christiane Kubrick, who is uh, Stanley's widow, which was super, super cool. I remember going into it thinking like, do I ask her about Room 237? And because it was, so this would have been 2014, 237 came out in 2013, 2012 or whatever, whenever it premiered at Sundance. And uh, I was like, do I ask her about the conspiracy theories? Ultimately, I decided not to because I didn't want to piss her off. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she has since spoken out about them and called them all, you know, wildly false and cra- like the claims all crazy here, and things like that. So here, here's my personal take on that. They're not because uh, films are not made for the auteur; they're made for the audience. So they're allowed to decipher whatever meaning they want. This from is them. part of the reason why this is my yeah. favorite film of all time. Yeah, I which love is, which is all of the theories. I love all which, of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is great. So okay, so. Out of, I think there's five that they mention in the 237 documentary. And by the way, did you catch the Shining reference in that horrible movie we just recorded a podcast for, Come True? Did I miss a Shining reference? I don't miss yeah. Shining oh, references. You missed Was it Hedge Maze related? No. So remember when he? Remember when uh, she goes to the hospital and he, the guy, the guy that's been stalking her, is like running around in circles. He runs downstairs to the desk and goes, "I can't find her. Can you find? Like no one's on the second floor." And she goes, "Yeah, she's in room two thirty-seven. Oh, nice, ah, nice catch. I caught, nice catch. I, I caught that. And I was like, boom, there it is. I thought that the, anyway. there was a music box that's in one of the dream sequences that looks a little bit like the hedge uh, maze. Really? I thought that. Oh, I thought yeah. That's what you no, did. no, it was like a straight. It was a straightforward one. All right. Um, so out of the, I think there's five, like I said, in Room 237. It's been a while since I watched it, but like, which of those do you put most of your money into if you had to? The one that I would put all of my money into is the, <laughs> uh, how it's, uh, an analogy for the genocide of the indigenous peoples. Well, the Shining is, is the main reason that I wanted to go to film school. And I think I touched on this in another podcast, but in the early days of the internet, I would, I was like a sleuth where I was like finding everything that I could about all the movies that I loved, The Shining being sort of the top of that list. And I I remember reading a really, (laughs) to me, it was like a compelling essay about that theory um, in particular. And so I've always kind of seen the film as that. And I don't think it's super far-fetched because there is a lot of imagery. There's talk of it being built on a native burial ground. There are just things in it that I'm like, okay, he's Kubrick is trying to say something. So I'm not going to say I believe the moon landing was faked because I don't. There are a lot of people that do. But out of all of them, I think that one's probably the one I bought into the most because it's so... The facts are so... And this is how conspiracy theory works. We, we Like, I know, I'm aware. It's so out of this world, and the fact that they can assign evidence to it is just, like, so interesting. The carpet... 
for for one it blew my mind when when they when they showed that if if anybody doesn't know uh the very famous uh, orange and black carpet pattern uh one of the conspiracy theorists asserts that the map of the uh the black the launch point from Apollo 11 what <laughs> like it ma- matches almost perfectly to to that uh to to the carpet and so i saw that and they overlay them and i'm like what that is bonkers, and so I think that one's the most fun to buy into. Yeah, you know, I'm agree. not saying I'm not saying I believe it, but it's definitely the most fun to buy into. This is probably the one I think is the most accurate. I forget who says it, but the last movie that Kubrick made before The Shining was Barry Lyndon, and Barry Lyndon's a super interesting movie. He literally like re-revolutionized the mechanics of the camera to get exposures from what exposure would look like from that time period due to the like the way that lights were like gas lamps and stuff like that so it's super cool but there's literally there's like there's like minute shots of people fishing in that movie like it's a super boring one yeah and i think it hits the nail on the head that like kubrick was like all right i'm gonna make a movie that is a literal labyrinth for you to escape from and i'm going to fill it with such intricate detail and it you there's going to be a never ending potential for interpretation, and I like that. That's kind of where I fall on this. Like I like I hundred yeah hundred percent Calumet peace pipes. Let's go. That's that's totally, totally uh what what this movie's about, and I'm also like yeah hundred percent totally that that is the moon landing. Let's go. That's I'm I'm about it. If you if you want to talk about it, if you want to believe that I'm about it. I think it's all of those things. Yeah, and I I think that's why it's such a. I hate to say this, but like, because because it is a cliche, but I don't think we see another movie like The Shining ever again. I was gonna ask because you that: it, is there is yeah. there another film that you can think of that has provided folks with as much of a realm to sort of just like go wild? With um, it? Yeah, there's one uh, that comes to mind immediately. I'd have to think for more, and that's Eraserhead. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah, but not, certainly not in the last you know, X many years, right? I think the person that's trying the most to be, and it's not surprising at all, is uh, is uh, Nolan, right? Yeah. Like, he, like he, he wants to make these mazes, right? Like, Inception, Inception you know, they're, they're very different movies, but you can obviously see uh, uh, the hallway fight scene in Inception is like, that hallway is like taken out of the shining, right? And and he he wants to he wants to create labyrinths, and it's the same thing with uh, Tenet. If you saw Tenet, I actually really like Tenet. Um, it's 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 a maze that you need to find yourself out of, and I think Nolan does it. I I know Nolan's a bit of a hot button for people. Um, you know, some people think he's the end all be all, and other people think that he's making garbage, right? Um, I respect him a hell of a lot, and I I, I you can tell that he has a lot of influence from Kubrick. I think modern day those types of movies are the ones that are true mazes, and it's it's interesting to me that they're blockbusters too, which I think is crazy because that's what The Shining was, right? In 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 Kubrick's heyday, he was he was making a horror movie from the most successful American author of all time with one of the most popular American actors of all time. That was a blockbuster, and and it, it certainly doesn't feel like one. I can't think of a movie similar to that that has come out with th- that scope and that 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 almost anti blockbuster feel for a blockbuster. You know, it's 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 such a unique film, and it's clearly affected the lives of millions and millions and millions of people. I think also too just the the footprint that it has on pop culture just in general. Uh, I don't know if you watched The Simpsons growing up, but there's a great uh, Treehouse of Horror 
about The Shining. I know that the Simpsons folks, the, the creators, were big Kubrick fans. There's a lot of Kubrick references throughout um, The Simpsons. But the Toy Story, uh, Pete Docter, he's a huge Kubrick fan, and you can see little Easter eggs in the Toy Story movies that reference The Shining. One of my favorite movies has the weirdest Shining reference, and I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. Have you ever seen Kung Fu Hustle? I, ha I haven't seen it. It's like Looney Tunes meets Kung Fu, and there's this one scene where this guy is charged with breaking the beast out of prison and the beast is like the the greatest kung fu fighter of all time and they need him to beat these he's a bad guy though like they need him to beat these other two masters who are like defying this crazy gang and uh so this character the main character is trying to break him out and like he's running through the prison and he turns around and looks towards the door and it's the it, so it's a hallway in the prison and the blood comes out from the left from the door and it's a straight shining reference and like, if you need to know how transcendent this film is to not even just American culture, but to global culture, we have we have a comedy kung fu movie coming out in 2004 that is one of my favorite movies. Please go check that out. We will not be doing a podcast on it, but it is an amazing film. And they're throwing Shining references in it just for, just for shits and gigs, you know? It, it's such a transcendent pop cultural icon, not just for you know, Western uh, culture, right? It's all over the world. Think about it though. All of the I iconographic images from the film, we got the yeah. twins, we got the elevator doors, yep. we got Red Drum. Uh, even the overhead shot to begin the film is has become yeah. synonymous with, with horror, and, it seems. Yeah, and it, like, oh my God, is there anybody out there? I mean, I'm sure there are people, but I, like I hear, dun, 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 dun. Like, dun it's like the Gregorian dun, chant dun, soundtrack. Yeah, the, oh it's my God. So, the soundtrack yeah, is creepy. still the yeah. best thing ever. It's so good. I think this is a good transition because I have said this before on other podcasts. This is where me and Josh diverge with The Shining because we, we both love both iterations of it. However, how did that affect you with the movie? Like, like, like what kind of dynamic did you have between these two versions of these stories that are now in your head? I've read the book in high school. Uh, so I was probably 16, 15 or 16. Um, so well sure. after I'd seen the film for the, for the first time, stopped it for the first time, like I said. Um, but I think to me, they're completely different. They're completely different stories I agree. to me. I, I don't, reading the book and watching the movie, it's, they're, they're completely different experiences. I really can't, I can't even, I can't even talk yeah. about s similarities between the two because I don't see them as the same at all. It is a very unique thing where it does feel uh, disconnected from the book, even though that foundation is there. Like it's not, it's not like it came from nowhere, right? It very much came from the book, but the, but the, thematically, it's so different. Um, and you know, one one of the main kind of things is Jack Torrance, right? Because Jack Torrance in the book could be one of the best characters that Stephen King has ever written, because. It was him. Uh, at, at the time, Stephen King was dealing with a very aggressive drug and alcohol problem. Uh, he was afraid he was tearing his family apart, and he put that into this character. Because in the book, Jack is not a monster. I, th I think... I think this is where the major delineation comes between the two is the character of Jack Torrance because in the movie, you can see from the get-go, Jack's ready to kill his family. He just needs an excuse to do it. And the Overlook becomes that excuse. 
In the book, he's so afraid of going down the same path of his father, which was an abusive alcoholic, and he doesn't seem to be able to help himself, and that terrifies him. So the real horror that you're experiencing from this book is not a visceral... Or, or uh, it is psychological, but it's in a different way than the movie does, right? The, the, the real terror that comes from the book is experiencing this man who sees his future and can't do anything to stop it, even though he wants so desperately to do that. That's why I love the book so much more than the movie, even though I do I love the movie so much. It's, it was an introduction to horror for me, for sure. But... Uh, and, you know, this is where we're going to get a little personal in that I, I have a history of alcoholism in my family. It's destroyed my family many times over. And whenever I read that book, I'm Danny, right? Like, I, I'm I'm the person who sees what my dad's becoming because of what his dad made him. And I'm afraid that I'm going to be the same way. And And this is something I carry with me every day. Like, I'm so afraid of turning into that person. And the, the Shining is where it, it, it helps me a lot because I, I'm able to embody this experience and look at it through a different lens and, and, and see that, you know, the, even, there, there is hope for Danny. And I think I, that's why I think uh, Dr. Sleep is such a fantastic story in itself because it, does sh- it shows you that Danny does the same things that his father does, right? Like it shows you that it happens to him, but it also shows you that he at some point in his life was able to overcome that. So, so the the book to me is such an important experience um, emotionally uh, for me. Whereas the, the the film is such a unique experience, and that it, it which is where this the the Kubrick King feud comes from, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a very famous. Uh, you know, it's very famous that Stanley Kubrick and Stephen King butted heads very much because Steve wanted it to be his story and Kubrick had different ideas. Like I understand where Stephen King's coming from, right? Like he, he wrote the most personal story he has ever written in his entire life about his own reflexive destruction and, you know, had someone come along and be like, yeah, I'm going to make him a monster. And this is going to, and this is going to be, this is going to be a psychological labyrinth that the, that, and and I'm going to, I'm, he, he pretty much told him I'm going to make the audience you when they watch this right and i can only imagine the kind of reaction that he had initially and and so you know th- this is where i'm at with, with 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 the two delineations of the story because they're very different and they're very unique and i i do feel like if you're a person who's only read the book and never seen the movie a person who's never uh read the book but seen the movie you can feel comfort in knowing that they are two distinct stories and there's really no need for a feud because they overlap they don't overlap Almost at all. I can't imagine that handing over a story that personal would ever go well for any author. I just, unless he's directing it himself, like I just don't think that that's going to be helpful for the person who has written the book basically about their own struggles. It's super weird to even think about too, because I remember there are stories of Stanley Kubrick on the set of uh, A Clockwork Orange. And he he didn't have a script. He was using the book as a script. Like like there are there are shots of him not even carrying around like you you know a, 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 an actual shooting script, but the book. And day by day, they would say, "We're going to do this scene from the book. The lines are your dialogue from it." So it, it, it's and I, I'm so I'm sure when like Steve came along and he was like, oh, "I've I've heard that story. Maybe that's what he's going to do with mine." And then he, and then he was like, "Nope, just threw it out the window." You're so right about the fact that... So when you're watching The Shining as a film, and I I just rewatched it, Jack from the jump 
is a miserable person. Yes. Who there's like, it's almost as if like Wendy understands, Danny understands that it's like helpless to even try to intervene. And I think, I think Jack's just like a helpless, angry, abusive person. You're so right about the book too, because you do, and this is, this is just a, maybe a product of the fact that you're able to uh, introduce a little bit more character-wise in a, in a novel, but you do see that there's a struggle happening in Jack and that he is trying. He's At least he's trying, right? The struggle's there, and he's trying. One of my favorite scenes from the book is, so Danny is a, obviously a telepath, right? And he has The Shining. And so he can read his uh, parents' minds, and he tries so hard not to, but sometimes he can't help it. And so there's a scene where they're at the dinner table and the scene right before it is Jack is driving around with his drinking buddy that he works with and they're, they're speeding down the highway at one in the morning with their lights off and they demolish a bicycle that's just sitting in the middle of the road and they don't know why. They don't know if anyone was on it. They, they looked and looked and looked and they couldn't find anybody, but they don't know why the bike was in the middle of the road and they can't be sure that no one was on it. And so he's living with this reality that like this unsureness of his actions and Danny peeks into his dad's mind and he sees a bicycle and he's like, I wonder what that means. And then he digs deeper and he finds a word in there and the word terrifies him. And that word is suicide. And so we get from early in the book that Jack really is not doing well. In the book, it's internal, right? Like you think, you think that he's going to destroy himself uh, because of that suicide that's, that's, that's thing in his head. But then the book makes a turn when, he deci- when the overlook, which is this embodiment of his dependencies and his fears that he is going to create in Danny what his father created in him despite not wanting to. And because of those dependencies and those fears, he is incapable of any other path than the destruction of his family, which is what came before him because he was so reliant on these dependencies that are embodied by this hotel. Like, could you imagine Jack Nicholson in that scenario at all? He doesn't seem to hate himself at all, right? Like, like he, he's, he's such a Jack Nicholson. He's so confident. Like, he's R.P. McMurphy, you know what I mean? Like, he, like he, it's the same idea, only like a psychotic R.P. McMurphy. And I think that's what's interesting about his depiction, because he, he I mean, he is Jack Nicholson, so he comes along with sort of the, the pedigree as an actor and, the, and, the, and sort of all the roles that he had previously been in. We, we, we see that in him, right? So, like you're talking about McMurphy, and I think the unhinged aspect of the character of Jack Torrance in the film, The Shining, it really speaks to Nicholson's uh, abilities as an actor. But I also think that either with guidance from Kubrick or on his own, just was like, I'm going to lean into this role. I'm going to like lean in as much as possible to being like delivering these, these one-liners, like the Wendy I'm home one-liner, the here's Johnny one-liner, the give me the bat, the give me the bat, you know, like the, and, it's, it's horrifying. He's like trying to kill his wife and we're laughing at the things that he's saying along the way. We're going to touch on uncomfortable territory here. Have you seen the 1997 miniseries? Of course. How do you feel about that one? <laughs> I don't love it. I don't love it, but I think it's because like Steven it's, Weber from Wings is the it's lead character. Fine. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually think he does a really yeah, good not, job. Like I, 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 uh, I heard an interview once of uh, of Mike Mike Flanagan talking about it too uh, after he made Doctor Sleep, and he was saying like. I like the Steven Weber one. And apparently he said that at like a horror con and everybody like, 
like the room hushed. It's interesting to watch because, you know, it, it came from Steve wanting to adapt his book, right? And not, not make it the Stanley Kubrick version, which is ironic because I think the things that are the worst about the miniseries are things that don't come from his books at all. Mick Garris, the director, treats it like a, like a Halloween haunted house. It's not like that in the book at all. And it's not like that in the the Kubrick version at all. Like, he wanted to make it more like his book, and I feel like it's just not, even in that, even in that scenario, it's not like his book. So there's things to like about it, but that 97 miniseries to me is ironic because it feels less like King's book than he wants it to, and it was him wanting to make it so that it would feel more like his book. Yeah, shout out to Mick Garris. Come on our podcast, bud. Well, I know you like talking about yeah, the, yeah, the projects that you've yeah, done in the past. Yo, he loves talking about it, and I enjoy I enjoy his podcast. Same. But I want to make a Mick Garris drinking game where he where he it's he it's like it like you take a you take a drink if he tells you that the stand was the highest uh, watched miniseries at the time of its release, or you take a drink if he tells you that he wrote uh, Hocus Pocus. So yeah, it's, and, it's, and one or, it's one or the other. Be cautious if you're going to play that drinking game out there because you will get real drunk, right? Drunk. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you will get obliterated. <laughs> uh, that being said, Mick Harris is Mick Harris is a cool dude. Not shout saying out he's Mick. not, but it, his podcast is kind of shout out Mick. Let's uh, let's get you on the Nightmare Network oh, yeah. podcast. We could talk about this for hours and hours and hours on end but we are thinking about you constant listener and your time so i have a few more questions what does the overlook mean to you the overlook hotel to me is the ultimate haunted house it's the it's the place that uh it's almost like infectious like it infects its inhabitants with its ghastliness you know like to me, it's the ultimate haunted haunted house, and I've been to both the Timberline in Mount Hood, uh, Fort Hood, whatever. That was my next it. question. <laughs> uh, apologies, and uh, and and the Stanley Hotel, where which is where King was inspired to write the book. So, um, I'm chasing those ghosts, man. I'm chasing them. The Overlook to me is an external reflection of ourselves. The Overlook doesn't exist without the person inside it. And the the Overlook to the Overlook to Danny and the Overlook to Jack is this is fear and dependency. It's it's this fear of not passing down onto your children what's been passed on to you. And it's the fear of your father, right? Like that's Danny Danny's afraid of his dad when he gets there and it just gets worse and worse and worse. He, he has this burning love for him, but he's afraid of him. And you know, they're they're talking about uh, making a mini series or a TV series with J.J. Abrams about the Overlook Hotel, which would be like a, a prequel to it. And Josh is making a face, and he does not like that. But I will say, what did Grady see? What was Grady going through the the year before Jack Torrance came there with his family? Like, what were his fears? Because I doubt it was the same experience. You, you know what I mean? Man, I want Dick Holleran's story. I want to hear from Dick Holleran. If they did that miniseries and it was Dick's story, like throughout the years, that would be cool. 100%. I'm on board with that. Thank you guys so much for joining us uh, today on Nightmare Revisited The Shining. Like I said, this was a big one for both of us. So thank you so much for joining us and we will scare you later. Thanks for listening to the Nightmare Network podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and don't be afraid to give us suggestions on movies that spooked you out for our next episode. You can visit nightmarenetworkofficial.com to submit your own nightmare to be adapted into a short film on our YouTube channel. As always, at Nightmare Network, you share your scares.